0: Okay, good morning, good morning. Okay, so the second question we're going to ask today is what did this passage mean to its original audience? Okay, so question one, what does this passage say? Question two, what did this passage mean to its original audience? And I'll give you the other five questions that we're going to try to get to. (laughs) Question three is what does this passage tell us about God? Question four, what does this passage tell us about man? Question five, what does this passage ask of me? Or what does this passage demand of me? Question six, we're going to be sure to get to this question. How is this passage about Jesus? Uh, our presupposition in interpreting the Bible, and I think it's a right presupposition that we'll talk about it in a few weeks, is that every passage in one way or another is about Jesus. And if you don't get Jesus out of a passage, you're not reading it rightly. So that's question six. And then the last question is, how can this passage me- prompt me to meditate and pray? Okay, so today we're looking at question two, what did this passage mean to its original audience? Before we get to that question, though, I need us to talk about why this question is important, because this question, what did this, this question entails some important presuppositions behind it for how we think about and read the Bible, Um. So here's one thing that we need to understand right away. The Bible is not the Quran. The Quran is the holy book of Islam. And does anybody know how um, Islam teaches, how do Muslims believe the Quran came to us as far as revelation? Anybody know? Through Muhammad. Say that again. Through Muhammad. Through Muhammad and it just basically pff, was injected straight into his brain. It dropped down right out of heaven pretty much is the way to think about it. Um, without any sort of regard for historical context, setting, time, and place. It just was poof. And which is one of the reasons, by the way, why Muslims to this day say the only language the Quran can really be understood in is Arabic, which is the language in which the Quran was received from Allah by Muhammad according to Islam. And so there's a tendency, I think, in Christianity to think about the Bible in a similar way. That is that the Bible is just kind of this thing that got dropped down out of heaven. By the way, Mormonism says something very, very similar. Golden tablets just happened to randomly appear in like the northeastern United States 150 years ago, and this guy just happened to get them, and this is the new revelation. And so the idea behind this question, what did this passage mean to its original audience, is premised on, A bigger and very important idea for how we understand the Bible and that is the Bible is not the Quran the Bible comes to us in real history with real people in given historical situations and contexts therefore you have to understand a little bit about the given historical situation and context in which a given part of the Bible was written to understand well that part of the Bible does that make sense to everyone so all that to say, God is not, uh, God wants us to study the context surrounding a given part of the scripture because that will aid our understanding. It's not ahistorical or non historical, the Bible. So the Bible's not the Quran. And then, a second important premise the Bible is also not to be interpreted in sheer allegory like some of the early church fathers interpreted the Bible. Let me give you an example. Remember in the birth narratives when three wise men bring, um, what are those three things they bring to Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, a lot of the ancient, if you read ancient commentaries, especially Eastern fathers, they will interpret that in all kinds of ways. Anyone want to take a stab at how some of them interpret gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Three, that it's a representation of the Trinity that the Trinity is kind of hovering over Jesus here. and there's, that's, that's what we call pure allegory, okay? There's no rhyme or reason behind saying, this says one thing, but it means something completely different that parallels what it's actually saying. Does that make sense? That's not the way we're to read the Bible. What that does is, similarly to what Islam does with the Quran, is it divorces the Bible entirely from its historical and grammatical setting, Okay? The Bible is not to be divorced from its historical and grammatical setting, which is why we ask this question to aid our reading of it. Another way to put it is that the Bible takes seriously both its divine authorship. God is the ultimate author of the Bible and its human authorship. The Bible's authored by all kinds of different people over a span of like 2,500 years in all kinds of different historical situations. And so taking both of those seriously is necessary to rightly understanding the Bible, to reading the Bible with heart and mind. Um, all that implies, Westminster Confession 19, I think I mentioned this last week, says that reading the Bible through the due use of ordinary means That's a 450-year-old way of saying anyone who reads the Bible thoughtfully and like you read any other ancient document can learn and understand the main message of the Bible. Through the due use of ordinary means. You don't need some sort of special allegorical interpretation. You just need to study it. You need to think about it. And God reveals himself in a way that we can understand what it means through just ordinary study. Okay, does that make sense so far? Any questions about what I've said to this point? Comments? Yes, that's a great point. Okay. Um, Another thing I wanted to mention is that the the doctrine, we have a doctrine called the inspiration of the Bible. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, all scripture is inspired. A better translation. All scripture is God-breathed. Breathed out by God. So that's a statement about the, the authorship and origin of the Bible. It's ultimately God who is the author. And because it's inspired, it's profitable, Paul says to Timothy, for teaching and training and in righteousness and godliness in our lives. But our doctrine of inspiration doesn't, again, I'm making the same point in a different way, doesn't mean that the Bible magically appears in some sort of, you know, with the snap of God's fingers out of nowhere. Listen to what B.B. Uh, Warfield, who is a New Testament scholar, writes about the Doctor of Inspiration. So stick with me, listen to this. He says, The books of Scripture were not produced suddenly by some miraculous act, handed down, complete, out of heaven, as the phrase goes. But like all other products of the time, they are the ultimate effect of many processes cooperating through long periods there is the preparation of the men to write these books to be considered a preparation physical intellectual spiritual which must have attended them throughout their whole lives and indeed must have had its beginning in their remote ancestors and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right places at the right times with the right endowments impulses acquirements to write just the books that were designed for them Okay, that's a part of our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. To to put it a little bit crassly, God gets his hands dirty in giving us the Bible. He works through the messiness of humanity and history. And so I think about when I read that quote, like the Apostle Paul, what do we know about Paul's background, just his life background? Any someone tell me something you know about Paul? Yeah, he was a murderer. So that that's a big point. What else? What about his, you know, his childhood? He was a scholar. He was a a highly trained Jewish scholar who studied under, you know, it would have been like the Harvard of the day, right? Other thoughts about Paul? He had Roman citizenship. He had Roman citizenship. He was a Roman citizen. That's a big part. We're going to look at that in the sermon a little bit today as well. Other thoughts? Okay, so Paul, those are very important. Highly educated, very brilliant man who's... Go ahead. He, was an inquisitor. he, he yes. He, he in, 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 yep. He a, inquisitor is a good word. He asked a lot of questions, and his upbringing was as he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. But Jesus met him, convicted him of his sin, sin of murder, and many others, and brought him to faith. And his writing of the New Testament letters that he wrote, his background informs that right. So the letters of Paul are different from say, um, the Gospel of John. John is different than Paul. He didn't have the same education. John's a fisherman from a small village who, uh, if you just read John and if you read Paul, you can tell these are very different guys. So that's what Warfield is saying in that quote, is that the, the way we, men grew up and the education they had or didn't have and the experiences of their life, God used that to give us the Bible. And so the, yeah, Jonathan. Okay. Uh-oh. So, <laughs> um, this, is,
1: this is really good. And... And you may have an answer. That you may plan on talking about this a little bit later this morning. But God, God could have revealed the Bible in the way that that Muslims say the Koran would revealed. He could have done it that way. And in fact, some parts of Scripture are that way a little bit. Yeah. Like when He spoke to Moses on the mountain, He write this down. in just word for word. Yep. But most of it is the way you have described. Yep. So my question is, why do you think? God did it the way you have just described rather than through the golden tablets, the way the Mormons believe.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I figured that might be what you're going to ask. Um, that, yeah, I, I, I think there's a, I mean, this is inherently somewhat speculative, but there is a parallel between the way God gives us the scripture and the way God works in, in Jesus. Like, God is incarnational. God likes to get involved in the world he has made because of his love. And so God could have, you know, God, Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? Jesus is God with us. And I think there's a parallel in the way God reveals himself to us in the scripture. He, he doesn't stay removed. He draws near. And he does it through really jacked up situations. I mean, all, it takes like half of Genesis for you to figure out what is going on here. This is a mess. And I think God does that intentionally because it's telling us something about his character, that he's not distant, he's near to us. And even the way he makes himself known manifests that. Now, that is a little bit speculative, but I think there's good theological grounding in that idea. That's a good question, though. Other questions or comments? Okay, remember, we're trying to get to this question what did this passage mean? And I'm saying the reason this question is an important one to ask is because the Bible is not ah ah-historical. The Bible has a context, always. Therefore, understanding the context helps us understand the text. Um, So in a sense, reading the Bible is always something like reading someone else's mail. Reading the Bible is always, always, in a sense, us listening in on a conversation, so to speak, that God had with people who lived and died long before we were ever born. There's never a time where God, in a sense, directly communicates to us. Now, let me qualify that, right? He does directly communicate to us through the Bible as the Holy Spirit works, but he does it via these very ancient stories and revelations and experiences and letters. You're reading words that weren't originally intended for you, in a sense. And so the more you know about the context of the writing, the author, the audience, the occasion, the more likely you are to understand the Bible and avoid just applying our own contemporary situations to the text. So in Romans 15, for example, Paul says, all these things that were written in the Old Testament, Romans 15, 4, were written for our instruction. In other words, all of them... All of these ancient stories and these ancient parables and these ancient poetic narratives, they all were written for us, but not in the sense that God like, directly injects it into our brain, but in the sense that we have to enter the world of the Bible, the story and the history and the context. Okay. Um, any questions? Does that make sense? Before we start getting to the actual question. I think the
1: downloading... You got to learn through the lumps. Yeah. And then when you get lumped up, you start to learn start to learn better. And, then, and yeah. then you start to see
0: what God has for you. Or if it was an automatic download. Yeah. It's not it's relational. Still that's still not still relational. Still no, yeah, yeah I think process. that that's another point to your question, John. Like God wants us to, it's like J, he wants us to wrestle with him in a sense. <laughs> I think also
1: it, it doesn't honor uh, the way God made us. Yeah. God made us with capacity to think and to reason and to feel. And so when he, and so when he gives the scripture through the normal human means, it helps our the our image to grow and develop
0: to be more like him. Yeah, I think that's really good. Tim Keller, you go ahead, babe. I think
2: that? it also, I mean, the the progressive revelation of scripture. I think it also communicates to us something about about God. I don't want to go into allegory here, but. I think
0: it the frankincense is the Holy I it, Spirit. But
2: I think it communicates God was God in Genesis. God is God in the prophecies. God is God in Revelation. Like it communicates his always and foreverness. Yeah. And these, these are like little windows into him at these points. And I, and I think, A, that's a gentler approach, right, to bring us into understanding who he is. But it's also just sort of, yeah. Plotting, the, plotting the relationship he's had with
0: his people yeah. and
2: who he is.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. One of the thought that strikes me as I listen to y'all is like Tim Keller used to say all the time that because the Bible is like this, because the Bible demands us to relate to God and to relate to the stories God tells and the events of history, if the Bible never like offends you or if you don't ever leave the Bible thinking, that's confusing or that makes me angry, or that, then you're probably not reading it rightly. Like any relationship you have with a human being, at some point, if it's real, you're going to be, you're going to have quizzical looks, or weird questions, or be confused, or be challenged, or be offended. And so, if you read the Bible, you should sometimes be like, "What the crap is this, God?" You know, sorry for being a little crass, but I mean, that's I think an appropriate response because God is, yeah, he wants he's relational and he wants us to relate to him. So understanding the context of texts is essential to understanding the meaning of texts. To answer, so therefore, we have to ask this question. What did this passage mean to its original audience? A couple of other real quick things. Um, let me show you a couple of examples of why this question matters. Uh, there's often, you know, skeptics of the Bible will say the Bible contradicts itself all the time, blah, 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 blah. Especially Old Testament narratives. Let me give you an example. Uh, 2 Kings. If you have a Bible, you can go there. 2 Kings... Chapter 21, this is towards the end of 2 Kings. Uh, The author of 2 Kings is writing about this evil king of Judah whose name was Manasseh. Okay? And uh, actually, will someone read 2 Kings 21, 10 through, let's just go 10 through 18. Any volunteers? Okay, Paul, 2 Corinthians 21, 10 through 18. Sorry, Paul, real quick. Listen for how Manasseh is described and what God thinks of him. Go ahead. And Yahweh said by his servants and the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has
1: committed these abominations and has done these things more evil, has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel: Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria to the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a ditch, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them to the land of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their father came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, and all that he did, and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers, and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah,
0: son All right, so what, what was Manasseh's reign like, according to King's? Bloody. Bloody, that's a pretty good adjective. Not super pleasant, and God wasn't a huge fan. Okay, now let's go to 2 Chronicles, which is a parallel story, a parallel piece of revelation about the same events. Okay, 2 Chronicles 33. Let me just read a few verses here. Verse 10 through, I'll just go 10 through 17. Listen to this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Manasseh prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, etc., etc. So. People, critical people will look at the Bible and say, the story the Chronicles tells about Manasseh and the story that Kings tells about Manasseh cannot be reconciled. Those two things don't line up in any way. Kings says Manasseh is a disaster and God judge him. Chronicles says Manasseh repents and then leads the Lord, uh, leads Israel, at least to some degree, in faithfulness. So how do we reconcile those? You reconcile those by answering this question. What was the, what was the intent of the letter, of the book? Chronicles is written probably close to a thousand years after Kings, not that long, 700, 600, 700 years after Kings. That's the latest book in the old Testament. And it's written to a people of Israel who were in exile and who are struggling. A Davidic King is going to come. Kings is written for a very different purpose. And so the point is without getting into too much of the nitty gritty here, is that those sorts of seemingly on the surface, contradictory readings can be answered just by a little bit of study. What can we learn about the nature of this book? Why was it written? When was it written? For what purpose was it written? Another maybe clearer example is the New Testament book of Philemon. Philemon is about, what's, what's the main point of Philemon, or the kind of historical point? Does anybody know what's happening in Philemon? A slave, Paul is sending a slave back to its owner. And Paul doesn't say in Philemon, free this slave, right? And so many people have come along and said the Bible is pro-slavery, blah, 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 blah. But there's no work to understand what the context of this passage might have meant. What was ancient Roman history's view of slavery? How does Paul address that in Philemon? The more you know about slavery in the Roman Empire and first century manumission sort of stuff, the better you might understand the context of Philemon. Okay, the point again, the big point is... Asking this question and trying to answer it will help us get more understanding of what the Bible is trying to say. Okay? Now, what I want to do the rest of our time is give a couple of basic principles for how to answer this question. And then give you some tools to help you answer it. Okay? Any questions or comments about anything we've done so far? I guess I have one
2: question comment. Okay. I mean, it seems like you have to become a scholar of the Bible to understand these things, mm-hmm. and a lot of times these people, you know, are not educated. You know, all this stuff. So, you know, what does that say about God's in the
0: Bible to ordinary people? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I think this is one of the things about the Bible that's so wonderful, and I think it's very clear that anyone can understand the main message of the bible from a 95 year old invalid to a four-year-old who's just learning to read so god has revealed himself in a way that it the main message of the bible is clear but but let's not be simplistic it's also true that the person who knows more about the bible than anyone on the planet can continue to learn more so the bible is kind of an infinite treasure trove that can always be mined for more resources And so what I'm trying to say is, yes, you're right. Like if someone's just become a Christian, I'm not going to talk about grammatical, historical, interpretive methods necessarily. But what I am going to do is read the gospel of John with that person or read Mark with that person. And it doesn't take two or three chapters before that person's asking, what's going on here? Who were the Jews? (laughs) You know, why is Rome? Why are these people mad at this centurion? What's the tax collector all about? They're inherently going to ask these kinds of questions, and so a part of Christian discipleship is training and teaching and discipling people into a greater understanding of the Scripture. So yes, the main message can be understood, but growth and knowledge in God's Word implies answering this question. So I don't want it. To, I don't want this to come across as, "Wow, there's too much here for me to ever get it." Okay. So, but let me balance that with, we do need to work to understand the Bible better. Does that make sense, Laura? But
2: yeah. There's also the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer who can take a text. I mean, it's not like you're sitting down and reading an encyclopedia trying to digest it. You have the ultimate study aid if you are in Christ because you have the Holy Spirit, which is why people in prison can sit down and read the Bible and all of a sudden understand Jesus, because the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's 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 the lens. There's people who study the Bible for a living who don't know Jesus. So... That, I think that is always at work and something we have to access and keep be mindful of and not just our brains and not just our study skills.
0: That's right. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit is essential. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work contrary, nor does the Holy Sp- Because the Holy Spirit helps us understand the Word, does not mean, therefore, that we shouldn't study it. Does that make sense? He uses ordinary means to aid our understanding. But yeah, absolutely, the reason I can say anyone can understand the Bible and yet there's always more to learn is because of the work of the Spirit, for sure. Okay, let me give you a couple of basic principles for, really, this is the question, here's a word you should know, of hermeneutics. Herman Herman Hermeneutics, Mr. Nudics, is a... uh, Hermeneutics is the study of interpreting the Bible. Hermeneutics is the study of interpreting the Bible. And so I'm going to give you a couple of basic hermeneutical principles and then talk about tools that we can use to help us answer this question when we approach any text. Principle one, the Bible is comprised of words, sentences, and paragraphs. That might go without saying, but I'm saying it anyway. That implies the grammatical study... Is important to understanding it. Like, how does this word relate to that word? How is this sentence dependent on that sentence? It's Especially, like, what genre would this be even more important in than others? Okay. Poet, It's very important in poetry. What else? How about Paul? How about what we're reading right now? Like, if there's a bunch of therefores and buts and uh, in this life, like. Those kinds of words aid our understanding. So understanding the grammar and structure of a passage. One basic hermeneutical principle is that it's going to aid our understanding of what the passage meant. Okay? Second, the second her- hermeneutical principle is that the Bible, and I've already talked about this, was written in historical context. This implies studying the historical background will aid our understanding No part of the Bible was dropped right out of the sky onto our laps. Now, you can understand it with knowing nothing about the background, but you will grow in your understanding of it if you grow in your understanding of the historical background. Principle three some of y'all have already anticipated this. Reliance on the Holy Spirit and deep study of the text itself are not mutually exclusive. Okay? Reliance on the Holy Spirit and deep study of the text are not mutually exclusive. The Bible is God's inspired word, but we gain understanding of it, again, Westminster 1, through a due use of ordinary means. Think about what Peter says. Remember 2 Peter, the end of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, there's this little offhand comment that Peter makes about Paul. (laughs) Does anybody know what it is? He says, Paul, our brother Paul, says some things that are really hard to understand. That's like 2 Peter 3, 16 or 15. And behind that comment lies a really important idea. And that is, even Peter thought part of the Bible was hard. And he was being led by the Holy Spirit to write it. So it can't be the case that if we find a text that's challenging, we shouldn't try to dive into it and study it to grow in our understanding. That is not contrary to reliance on the Holy Spirit. Now, we can read the Bible as we talked about last week, as if it's just a textbook with just our minds, okay? So we need to be dependent in our reading. But dependence on the Spirit is not mutually exclusive from study of the text. Fourth uh, principle is called the analogy of faith. In other words, Scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so if you come across a part of the Bible that's really hard, you use other parts of the Bible that are clearer to help you understand the more difficult parts. That is a fundamental hermeneutical principle. The, the infallible rule of interpreting the Bible is the Bible itself. Here's what the Bible, this, sorry, the Westminster Confession says. When there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Okay? And so if you are studying a difficult text and you arrive at a conclusion about what you think it means or meant, and that conclusion clearly contradicts another text in the Bible, your conclusion is wrong. Okay? And you need to keep studying, you need to keep researching, you need to keep praying, you need to keep thinking. Does that make sense? Stephen? Um, would you
1: say that in- Different authors, human authors of the Bible, and the the fact that they have different writing styles, um, you brought up differences between John and Paul and Peter. um, Would you say that, you know, obviously we are all different in many ways, and we, you know, learn things and understand things differently, that we can then maybe relate easier to one author? Yes. Than another, and therefore might find it easier to start with one genre or one author or something and build
0: from there. For sure. I think that's for sure true. Um, But usually, like, if I'm reading the Bible with a brand new Christian, but don't, we talked about this last week, like, don't start with the second half of Daniel. (laughs) Don't start with Leviticus. Don't start with, I don't start with that. That's foolish. I always, almost always start with either the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark. And, yeah, I think the way people are wired affects, like, it's a, that's an interesting study. Like, what's your favorite gospel? A part of that depends on the way you're wired. Um, more creative types, usually like John, because John is more circular in his reasoning and tells stories and is more vivid with his imagery. More anal- analytical types like Luke or Matthew. And then people that just want to go fast like Mark. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think it's wise to start with a well understood text um, Okay, let me, let me give you a couple of tools That I think can help us get to answer this question And then we'll stop um, Utilizing One of the great advantages of living when we live Is that we have, every single one of you on your phone Have more tools available for you to understand the Bible Than the best Bible scholar in the world A hundred years ago had um, you have a library. In fact, you have many, many libraries available to you just on your phone. Um, some of them I would not recommend you go visit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but some are very helpful. And utilizing the right tools can help us understand the Bible better and help us answer this question better. And um, so what I would just suggest, by the way, we need a, there's, kind of, there's very different types of reading the Bible. Um, there's just reading the Bible as a story, quickly plowing through it to gain broad understanding. And then there's like study of the Bible, like the women's Bible studies right now are studying the Bible. They're taking some time in a chapter and letting it marinate, simmering on it for a while. And both of those are needed and appropriate in the Christian life. But right now I'm talking more about the second of those, right, simmering in the Bible for a while and studying it. And I would just suggest that every one of you own or purchase for yourself, this is not one of them, but a good study Bible, The ESV Study Bible is a wonderful resource, and with... Stephen's got it right there. Within the Study Bible itself, there are so many tools that will aid answering this question. What did this passage mean? That it would be be foolish of us as students of the Scripture not to make use of them. So just a couple of quick tools. One is cross-references. So... Open up a Bible. Just open up your Bible to uh, where do we want to go. Let's go to Matthew. We've been talking about the beginning of Matthew some today. Matthew Matthew 2. We were in this story earlier. Visit of the wise men. Verse 5, Matthew 2, 5. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then there's a quote there. Now, most of your Bibles right before that quote should have a little letter. If you have the ESV, it probably has a little B in italics. Do you guys see that? If you see a B in italics, you go down to the footnote, and you find B, and you see that this is a quote from another part of the Bible, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's a cross-reference. It's referencing another part of the scripture. Now, to understand what Matthew's getting at, what do you think might be helpful? To go back and read Micah. Micah chapter five. What's going on in Micah chapter five? How do I think what Matthew's saying here about Jesus is fulfilling what God said 600 years before in Matthew, or excuse me, in Micah? Cross referencing. Um, if you have a study Bible, you're going to have more of that in the text itself. Specifically, maybe when a, when an important word is used in a narrative, sometimes you'll have a footnote or a whatever it is next to it that will give you other parts of the New Testament where that same word is used. That can really help you understand what this word tends to mean in the Bible. Does that make sense? So that's one really helpful tool to help answer what did this mean. Another tool, and this is my Lord of the Rings nerdery coming out. When you read Lord of the Rings, you got to have a good map of Middle Earth. And when you read the New Testament, it helps to have a map. At least I think. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, give me a break. There's all kinds of maps in the back of your Bibles. These maps can help aid our understanding of what the text meant. Any good study Bible is going to have maps. And then a third thing is, uh, Stephen, do you have a, that ESV Bible with you? At the beginning of every book, there's a, kind of a one-page summary of what this book generally is about. Written by reliable, trained... Okay, God, time to finish. I understand. <laughs> Wrap it up. Thank you, Joseph. Someone's playing a cruel joke on me, and he's stalling a timed light in this room. Uh, I have not yet taught in here, and the light doesn't go off. What is that trying to say? Um, so, yeah, right there. Here's Obadiah, and it'll tell you a little bit about Obadiah. That's a great tool for understanding what it meant. And then a couple of other things are just commentaries, biblical commentaries. Any of these things, guys, are tools that you can access through the purchase of any study Bible for $40 or through downloading good Bible apps on your phone. And so a part of answering what this passage meant to its original audience is using the right tools to aid our understanding. Okay, we're out of time. Next week, we're going to look at, hopefully, questions three and four. What does this Bible teach me about God? What does this passage teach me about about God? And what does this passage teach me about about myself, about man? Uh, Any final thoughts or questions before we wrap up? jose ladies, and ladies first oh, thanks, Jose. Um, i was hoping you would answer i this. know
2: right okay let's remember though that the title of this is called reading the bible with heart and mind and i know for myself if i know the answers can be found somewhere else i want to short circuit the process and just go fill up my mind one thing i'm learning as i get older is yes there are tools available at my fingertips but I need to not shortcut the work of the Spirit in the wrestling and figuring it out and thinking by just going to those. And I've done that a lot. I mean, I definitely have done that a lot. But to to sit with these questions and well, I think it means this, and how does that to really think about things instead of just trying to check the box. Okay, I know it. I know yep. the answer to this question because I found it in this commentary. And I think that that's how we bring our own heart into studying the
0: Bible. Yeah, that's great. Maybe, not, like, the, question, the first question, what does this passage say, should be answered by you before you start talking about the second question. Yeah, that's a great point. And
2: don't worry about getting it right. This is what I think it says. Yeah. That'll get corrected over yes. the course of the study. Yep. Jose. Similar the comment, I guess,
0: is that I am a thousand percent guilty of spending a lot of time maybe reading about the Bible. Yes. Watching videos of commentaries about. It. Yep. Go around in circles and not read the. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We Thank you. Author study. So you read that instead of. That's right. And I think maintaining that balance is really important. And so in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about how do I read in the presence of the Holy Spirit and listen to what the Spirit is telling me. That's not mutually exclusive from study. Both are important, but, yeah, that's a very helpful balance. Yeah, Amanda? Just last word.
2: One thing that's really helpful to me is rather, like, how I phrase the question of what is this saying about God and what is this thing about me? When I start, if I say, what do you want me to know about you? Like, what yep. do you want me to know about me? Or, you know, people. Yep. Um, and where i'm asking him to answer for me rather than trying to find the answer on my own and have my
0: answer that's right i think that's a great question to ask i will add to that though jesus is not going to give you an answer that violates these principles these basic interpretive principles you need to ask jesus that question you need the aid of the holy spirit but you also need to read with your mind so that's why we call this heart and mind before the presence of the Holy Spirit. Those are all really helpful, um, really helpful comments that help balance this more mind-oriented class out for sure. Okay, so I hope to see y'all next week. We'll talk about what is this saying? What is God telling me about himself and what is God telling me about myself as I read a given text? And we'll do some practice next week too. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, bless our worship as we move into your presence as your people come and meet with us and remind us of the depths of your love. Thank you for this time together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.